and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're delving into the seemingly science fiction world of xenotransplantation, that is, taking organs from animals and using them as organ transplants for humans. In January of this year, surgeons performed the first ever operation to transplant a heart from a genetically modified pig into a human, a 57-year-old man called David Bennett. Mr. Bennett had been suffering from severe heart failure, and as he wasn't eligible for a human heart transplant, he consented to this groundbreaking operation. So to find out more, I sat down with Rohan Francis, a consultant cardiologist who also runs the popular science YouTube channel Medlife Crisis. When Rohan and I spoke in early February this year, the patient, Mr. Bennett, was defying expectations and had survived for a month after the operation. However, since recording this interview, Mr. Bennett has sadly passed away two months after receiving the new heart and it's not yet been made public whether this was due to an issue with the xenotransplant itself or a consequence of his general poor health. This is still a remarkable scientific and medical development though, so I asked Rohin, how have we arrived at a place where we can use organs from animals as transplants for humans? This isn't the first time a xenotransplant has been attempted but it is the first heart transplant in this modern era. There was a kidney xenotransplantation performed towards the end of last year, but that was in a, a brain-dead recipient, and it was more a sort of experimental proof of concept, at first sort of human test, with the consent of, of the uh, recipient's family, of course. And presumably if the patient was brain-dead, they knew that they had no chance of living off it wasn't like we're going to give this person a kidney and that's going to bring them back. No. It was just, a, can we put the kidney in and it doesn't get rejected? Exactly. It was to test a lot of the aspects of the research that have been performed so far in, in a human recipient. But the interesting thing about the operation last month is that the recipient was fully conscious and able to give consent for himself. And he's a, a middle-aged gentleman who had end-stage heart failure and for reasons that haven't been made public, he was not a candidate for the conventional treatment options that are available today, which would be obviously human-to-human -human heart transplantation. So they pitched an idea, this experimental idea, of putting a, a pig heart as a transplant. And it was a success, and it's been a month down the line. So this is, you know, a really historical first because it potentially is the start of this new era where, I mean, the end goal ideally is that nobody has to die waiting for a transplant. The main problem with the organ donation model at present, as I'm sure everybody knows, is that we simply don't have enough organs. So there's always been an interest in xenotransplantation, trying to use animals as a resource to, to get these organs. And actually the first one people may be surprised to hear was attempted way back in the 1960s which was unsurprisingly a spectacular failure because we simply didn't understand the immunology at all then. What sort of transplant was it? That was a chimp heart into a, a man. And they just lifted the heart out of the chimp and stuck it straight in, no kind of modification, anything like that? Nothing at all. So it was, it, I mean, there's a bit of 
interesting story behind it because there was a little controversy at the time. And the surgeon, uh, James Hardy, he'd been inspired by one of his colleagues who'd had some success with chimp kidneys. And they'd had a patient who'd survived a few months with a chimp kidney and felt that there was no other option. So he was going to go for this chimp heart transplant. And he'd, he'd um, recently acquired some research chimps. I don't know if you, where you get them in the 1960s version of, of eBay or something, but he'd got some chimps and they were kind of in the building. And the, res the temptation was, was too much to resist. And the controversy was that when he was consenting the recipient's wife, because the patient was in a coma, he didn't mention that the transplant might be coming from another species. Oh, wow. And so the, the consent form, you can, you can still see it, just says transplant, you know, sort of whatever deemed appropriate by the surgeon. <laughs> so um, I'm glad we've kind of moved on from those days. But then there was a bit of interest in xenotransplantation over the subsequent decades. And there were attempts made from sheep, from baboons, chimps, but ultimately they all failed. And the reason is, is that the immune system is the main problem. And that's a, a similar kind of story for heart transplant in general, in that those early days of transplantation, actually success rates were really poor because we, we just didn't have a handle on the mechanisms of rejection. Well, this is the one thing that I know about organ transplants is they get rejected. And that's even human to human. I mean, it's even family member to family member, they can still get rejected. So surely they're even more likely to get extra rejected if it's from a completely different species. Yes, ex I mean, exactly that. It's, it's, a, it's a different kind of rejection, which is very catastrophic and immediate. You know, these organs that were placed between species without any kind of modification, within seconds or minutes, you will see the organ start to sort of turn a dusky color and eventually just go black and just clot off. When you've still got the patient's chest open, you can yeah, just yeah. see Yeah, I mean, it. you know, th th this is within, you know, immediately. And the most successful were only, you know, alive for maybe about a few weeks. What is happening when an organ gets rejected? Well, I mean, that's a, a very complex question, to be honest, but there are different aspects to the immune response. In this case, it will actually activate abnormal clotting. So it will just stop blood going to the organ just to try and kind of clot it off entirely. It will create a lot of inflammation. So it sends inflammatory cells to the region. These are kind of cells that will, will try and attack the foreign tissue and essentially kill it. So there are different elements to the, the immune response, but this initial one was the, the main hurdle that had to be uh, overcome for xenotransplantation to be a viable option. And that, to give you a, a sort of idea of how complex it is, has taken about three or four decades to, to get to the point we're at now. It's been uh, incremental changes and they're very, very clever. They, they've actually genetically modified pigs and created what's sometimes referred to as a 10-gene pig. 10-gene pig. Yes, it's referring to not the fact that the, gene, the pig has 10 genes, but... I was going to say, I think the pig has more than 10 genes. Yeah, just a handful. But four pig genes have been knocked out, specific ones that were causing the immune response in humans. The ones that say, hey, I'm a pig, I'm not a human. Exactly. The ones that express this, this sugar on the surface of the cells. And six human genes have been incorporated into the pig DNA. And so this is the six plus four, that's the, that's the 10 gene that they refer to. And 
there was essentially a shopping list put together of the kind of changes that needed to be made in order for pig organs to be useful. And sequentially, they've been going through trying to modify all these genes. And um, it's really an absolute marvel that they've done this and created essentially this genetically modified organism, which can potentially have organs for human use. These are special pigs that are donating organs, not your run-of-the-mill going-to-make-bacon pig. Exactly. And I think that's an important uh, point to make, is that it's not just going to be a case that uh, you can just go to a farm and, and get one of these pigs. These are very, very sophisticated, tailor-made organisms. And they essentially will lead very unusual lives. You know, they have to be kept in very sterile conditions. So one of the big risks of xenotransplantation, which we haven't mentioned so far, is the possibility of zoonosis or uh, infection moving from one species to another. Something people are even more aware of now than before. <laughs> I don't know what you could be referring to, but um, yes, I, I remember in uh, in Contagion, that the movie that kind of predicted all of the pandemic, uh, pigs were intimately involved in that, weren't they, uh, in the, the wet markets? Well, I think we'd, we'd just had swine flu at that point. Mm, yeah, yeah, of course. And the other potential infection concern are something called PERVs, porcine endogenous retroviruses. I'm glad you clarified that. Well, you can have herbs and PERVs depending on whether it's human or, or porcine. And these are actually viral DNA that's inside the pig DNA. So there's potential if you are transplanting something from another species, that these endogenous retroviruses, which we also have in our DNA, but we are obviously used to them, could cause some sort of horrendous catastrophic infections. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're on Twitter, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? We'll be coming back to Rohan Francis a little bit more at the end of the show. But first, we want to bring you news of a fabulous art competition for kids. To celebrate the 200th anniversary of the birthday of the great, great grandfather of genetics, that is, of course, Gregor Mendel, the Genetic Society is inviting primary and secondary school children in the UK to submit artwork based on Mendel's discovery of the rules of inheritance. It can be a drawing, collage, sculpture, or any other creative work. The best artwork will be featured on the cover of a special issue of Heredity, the official journal of the Genetic Society, and the winning student will get a £100 voucher and their school will get £500 towards science equipment. Students from primary and secondary schools can take part by submitting a high-resolution image of the artwork, together with the artist's name, age, materials used and school's name, to the team at genetics.org.uk with the subject line HAP-P, that's H-A-P-P-E-A, Happy Birthday Mendel by the 13th of May. Each student can submit up to three pieces of artwork and please be aware that this competition is only open for children in the UK. 
You can find out more about this competition by going to genetics.org.uk or by following the link in the show notes for our podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. Now back to the show. We've just heard how scientists have manipulated 10 genes in a pig to produce a pig heart that could be transplanted into a human without the human immune system rejecting it. But how exactly do you produce such a pig? And are we at risk of transferring more than just the heart from the pig into humans? Could we be setting ourselves up for a new pig-human zoonotic virus? Dr. Kat Arney raised some of these concerns with Professor Angelika Schnika, the Chair of Livestock Biotechnology at the Technical University of Munich. So we have these, these molecules encoded by genes on the surface of the pig cells that mean that, that the organs will be rejected. But also I know that a lot of our genomes are made up of things like viruses and stuff like that. So is, is that a problem as well? It's a theoretical problem. So we ourselves have endogenous retroviruses, the pigs have endogenous retroviruses. And there is a theoretical risk that if we now have a pig organ, which moves into the human, we might have then in the end, maybe a recombinant virus, which is sort of part human, part pig, and maybe then start completely new diseases. That sounds bad. Uh, how big a risk is it? It sounds bad, but so far there's no evidence that it actually occurs after an organ transplantation. So it has only been achieved experimentally that you try to reactivate the viruses. Most of the viruses are not intact viruses. They're parts of viruses and only parts will be expressed. Some might be still functional, but generally not. And how many viruses are we talking about in the pig genome that are potentially risky? Because I know that some companies, some researchers have just basically been trying to get rid of them because even if it's a theoretical risk, like it's, it's still a risk. I, I don't want some weird mutated pig disease going around. But there are two things you can do. So A, we can find animals which do not express any functional virus which we are worried about. And there are animals which just don't express it right from the beginning. So they should be safe. And then we have, depending a bit on the pig breed, between 25, 60, and sometimes more copies of mostly non-intact retroviruses. And like you mentioned before, there was a Chinese group, they had animals with about 25 copies, and they inactivated all of those. They haven't deleted it, they have inactivated them. So let's dig a bit more into the process by which you would genetically modify uh, a pig or a, another animal to make their organs suitable. So how does that process start? So you first have to define what are the important genes. So once you know which genes and then maybe also the perfs, you can inactivate those genes. Now we have CRISPR-Cas and so we can use CRISPR-Cas and can actually inactivate like all 25 retroviruses were inactivated at the same time. Other groups have done four different genes. Others, what you have to do is there are some genes where you do not have a complementarity between the pig and the human, and then you can go ahead and add the human genes to the pigs. So we are removing the retroviruses. We are removing or inactivating genes that might be a problem and then adding in genes that will make this tissue more compatible with humans. Exactly. That, that's a lot. Um, and at what stage would you do this? Then how would you like, how do you get this into a, a, a pig and into then into an organ? So 
at what stage are you modifying these genes? We still use a lot of nuclear transfer to do this. So we do all the modifications in the cells from a pig, and then we use the cells and make a pig out of it. How, hang on, hang on. How, we take the cells, we make a pig out of it. <laughs> like, how does that work? How does that work? We do something called somatic cell nuclear transfer. You can take any type of cells, usually it is either fetal cells or kidney cells. You keep them in culture, you modify them. Once you have identified the cells, which has exactly all the modifications you want, you then take an oocyte, which does, is not fertilized, so it can't really develop. You even then remove the genetic material from that oocyte, add the new genetic material from the cell, implant it into a pig, and hopefully you get an animal born. Fingers crossed. This is the kind of cloning technology that like Dolly the sheep and, and all the other cloned animals are Absolutely. used. Absolutely. Yes. So knockouts you can still do without problems sometimes directly in the embryo. But if you do some more complicated or multiple knockouts and you want to prove right away that the animal you generate is really genetically modified, then you do it with the magic cell transfer. So what are the the limitations of this technology? Because we've seen a pig heart recently being transplanted into a human and we're seeing you know, advances in this kind of a lot of interest in the area of xenotransplantation. I mean, is this technology really like, yep, they're good to go or are there areas where we could still really improve this? Well, we still have technical limitations, not so much on the genetic engineering side because that has really improved over the last few years. But we don't know all the important genes we need to modify for particular organs. And so we need the experiments, which we do. We then often do our single cell sequencing to see what is still going wrong. And once we know that, we can adjust this. The heart is a relatively simple organ. This was done first. People have some success also with kidneys. And then you probably also heard that people even trying to grow human organs in animals. Oh, yeah. So how, how does that work? Presumably it's sort of the, the other way around of the process. Ideally, brought people had hoped we can make chimeric animals. You might know about such, that which can take cells from closely related animals like the rat and put that into an early embryo from a mouse. And then you get an animal which is born, which is half mouse and half rat. So people had took that idea and saw, well, could that also work if we go or larger animals, which could then provide an organ. So when you take the embryo from a pig, add human cells to it, and would you then get a chimera? This doesn't sound good. Uh... <laughs> I, I would agree. And you have to add one more trick. You have to actually also delete some genes so that a particular organ can't grow. You know, so that the animal wouldn't have a pancreas, and then the new cells which come in should then produce these pubilises, pancreas. So you're effectively like making sure that even though it's this hybrid animal, that it's only growing human pancreatic cells, right? Yeah. This still doesn't seem good to me. <laughs> well, it still doesn't work. It's a good start. <laughs> yeah, I think that there is a difference in the species. And of course, there are a lot of ethical problems. Yeah, that's mainly the ones I'm worried about. <laughs> yes. That was Angelika Schneeker from the Technical University of Munich chatting with Katani. Kat isn't the only one thinking about the ethics of creating pigs with human genes, 
or these so-called chimera, which are animals containing the cells of more than one species. When I was talking to cardiologist Rohan Francis, I also had some questions about the ethics of all this. I mean, we now know that xenotransplants are possible, but does that mean we should be doing it? And what will the consequences be? Once we've got past the barrier of it being a pig and so the human body might reject parts of it, if we assume that we've gone past that, human body's not rejecting it, surely there are differences between pig hearts and human hearts. A pig is a larger animal than a human for a start. Are there any long-term consequences that we might be able to predict of just having a different anatomy, regardless of whether it gets rejected or not? I guess the, the simple answer is we won't know the long-term effects for a while. But yes, there are obviously some anatomical differences, although they're quite slight when it comes to, I can only really speak for the heart here. But Your favourite organ. No other organs exist. The only organ that matters, let's be honest. Uh, so the heart anatomy of a pig is a bit different because obviously they are on all fours. And so the orientation of their heart is somewhat different in their chest. It's a bit more straight, whereas ours is slightly diagonal in, in the thorax. Does that matter? It matters in terms of the vessels that lead into it. So they're plumbed slightly differently. But clearly that's been overcome in the transplant and obviously lots of experimental work in labs had been done prior to this. So there are subtle anatomical differences. In terms of size, actually, we're pretty comparable. So that's one of the key advantages of the pig as a, as a model. Okay, because another thought I had was if we're adding human genes to pigs, does that make the pig part human? And less pig? Yeah, technically, you know, when, when you have introduced another species DNA, then it, that is a, a chimera. And chimeras are, you know, not new. They've been sort of bred for a long time. But the techniques by which we're creating them now are increasingly sophisticated. So um, it's quite a common research tool now to have chimeric, most commonly, obviously, mice chimeric animals in research with, with human DNA as part of their genome. Because the heart, I know you love your hearts, Rohan, <laughs> but the heart is, is kind of, I don't want to say an inert organ, but a heart is a heart. It, it does one thing regardless of the animal that it's in. Whereas something like a brain, if you're adding human genes to the whole pig, therefore that will also affect, say, the brain. Does that give human traits to the animal that we're putting it in? Right. Well, this is a very interesting area. And there's a 2003 book by Margaret Atwood of Handmaid's Tale fame called Oryx and Crake, where in this dystopian future, they, they breed pigs as a, a source of organs for humans. But the pigs start taking on human characteristics. So they become super intelligent. Not, I mean, not super intelligent, but for pigs. For pigs. <laughs> yeah. And Which are already pretty intelligent animals. Well, yeah, you know, they're, they're probably similar to dogs, to be honest, in terms of intelligence, however you measure that. But, you know, I mentioned that story somewhat facetiously, but there is the potential when you're introducing human stem cells into another organism, you're telling them to develop into a certain organ, but there is potential that they can become any cell line. You know, that's what stem cells do. And I don't believe there's any evidence of this occurring in any of the pig models, but there are some really interesting papers I came across in research involving mice. So they made a, um, a mouse model 
with human glial cells. So these are support cells within the brain, not the neurons themselves, but... Oh, the ones that wrap around yeah. the neurons as an insulator. And they found that rapidly the human glial cells replaced all the mouse ones until it was almost 100% human glial cells in this mouse. And mice bred in this way had four times better memory than normal mice. And they were much more rapid at maze navigation. That's like saying I've taken my computer and I haven't changed any of the wiring connections. I've just replaced it from having a, a red coat on of plastic on the outside of the wire to a blue. And now my computer works faster. That is bizarre. Yeah, I mean, it's probably because we are oversimplifying the model. I'm, I'm sure there is more of an interaction between glia and, and neurons than insulating, you know, insulation on wires. But yes, you know, it, it is really quite shocking. And, I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to talk about some of these things when it comes to this field because I don't want to come across like, you know, I'm being some doom monger and, and, and trying to make it sound very dramatic, like we're going to have some horrendous half pig, half human, because I, I think that's, you know, getting a bit carried away and, and it's science fiction. But, you know, these are very interesting and, and important considerations to have. And, you're, you know, you're very right. When we fiddle with DNA, and I'm sure all your listeners will know this better than me, is we don't have a complete understanding of everything we're doing. And there's always the potential for some unintended consequence down the line. These are very early stages in a nascent field. You know, it's really that the first steps. And I don't think it's realistic that we're going to have xenotransplantation widespread in, in the next few years. I think it's still going to take quite a while. But hopefully this is a step in the right direction and ultimately trying to, to avoid. I, I was looking up the statistics for the UK and at the moment there are 6,000 people on the waiting list for a, for a transplant in the UK. And, you know, a lot of them sadly won't make it to the end of the year. So this is all with the intention of trying to prevent those avoidable deaths. That's all for now. Thanks to our guests, Rohan Francis and Angelica Schnieke. We'll be back next time and unpacking the balance between nature, nurture and a third component that often gets overlooked, the wobble. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else you could possibly want, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, and thank you to everyone who has left us a rating in the Spotify app or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference, and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's made by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayo. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.